is The Business of Being Human. I'm Christine Hildebrand. And I'm Wendy Horn Brower of Intune Collective. We help leaders like you reinvent how you lead and operate, connecting you and your companies to greater possibility and performance. From joy to awareness to consciousness and capacity building, we know that business as usual isn't business at all. Welcome to the Business of Being Human. I'm Christine Hildebrand. I'm the CEO of Intune Collective. Intune Collective is an anti-racist company standing in solidarity with our Black, Hispanic, APPI, Indigenous, and other people of color. We are a diverse team who provide business and leadership consulting, honoring humanity first as we evolve and innovate business. I'm so excited to announce this two-part salon discussion on the role of white leaders in achieving racial equity. In this episode of our salon, we welcome two exciting guests that have been working in the DEIB field, diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging field for over two decades. Jared Carroll, who is author of a upcoming book called The White Guy Confronting Racism, and Karen Fleshman, who's the founder of Racy Conversations. In this salon discussion, Karen, Jared, and I are going to have a frank conversation as white leaders and our role in generating and creating and holding the space for change. We're all influenced by the tremendous amount of transformation that is occurring with racial violence, social injustice, and a variety of things that we're seeing played out in our political and social systems. All of these situations have an effect on business and how leaders are generating productivity and belonging inside organizations so that businesses can grow and prosper. The reason why this is so important at this particular juncture is that we can no longer divide what happens in our environment and what happens in our workplaces to what happens in our hearts and what happens in our psyches. Everything that is going on in our environment affects our workplace, affects our workers, affects our productivity and our performance. So as leaders, we have the opportunity and the responsibility to create inclusivity and to create more of an environment and culture of belonging in order for people to step into their full capacity. So we're gonna start unpacking all of the things that leaders can do, particularly white leaders, in creating an environment for equity and inclusion. So because our conversation was so broad and so rich, we decided to divide the salon discussion into two parts. So in part one, we break down the situation that is occurring on a macro level so that we can create some understanding of the forces and the motivations and the impact this change is having on people of color. So after we lay the landscape out in part one, in part two, we dive into the role of white leaders and organizations in terms of what their responsibilities and opportunities are in creating the culture, in creating the environment for transformation and change to occur, and also what is involved in creating safety and equity and inclusion amongst your workforce. 
So we hope you'll stay tuned and thank you for joining us. Hi, welcome to Intune Collective's Salon. We are so excited that you're joining us today. Today is a really special day and I'm so happy to have our two guests with with us today to talk about a really important and pertinent topic, and that is the role of white leaders in achieving racial equity. Welcome, Karen Fleshman and Jared Carroll. And I want to just say a couple things about our renowned um, uh, guests here today. So thank you both for being here. Thank you for bringing us. You're welcome. Thanks for having us. So Jared, I'll, so I'm going to start with you. Um, Jared is a speaker and a consultant and has been working in the DEIB field for roughly 20 years. And it has a book that's coming out in September called A White Guy Confronting Racism. And we're going to have all kinds of information um, about Jared and, and we're going to hear about the book itself. Um, and we have, we'll have all kinds of information on how to reach Jared in our show notes. And welcome, Karen Fleshman. Um, Karen is the founder of Racy Conversation, whose mission is to inspire the anti-racist generation. And she has a book that's currently on Amazon called White Women We Need to Talk doing our part to end racism. Before we start the conversation, I wanted to give our listeners some context of what you can expect out of this discussion. The title, as I mentioned, is The Role of White Leaders in Achieving Racial Equity. We're going to talk a little bit about the cultural condition that is existing in our environment right now that is really commanding the reason for this conversation. We're going to talk about defining some of the terms like what does social justice mean, DEIB, equity versus equality, and racism, anti racism, and allyship. We're going to talk about the responsibility of leaders as individuals and the power they have and influence we all can have around change. And then we're going to move into how does this translate to our spheres of influence or organizations that we work in and the dynamicness that's going on in the business world around this issue is, is being handled and played out in multiple ways. So we're gonna dig into like, what is the organizational role in this time of change? And then finally, we're gonna end on what does an inclusive world actually look like? If we can paint the picture of equanimity and, and allyship, what can what do we all stand to gain? And so I look forward to outlining what our possibility is in that vision. So to start us off, I want to start with Karen. You and I were having a conversation the other day about all of the conditions that are contributing to this dynamic time we're living in. And I wanted to just have you share a little bit about some of the catalytic events that have been occurring, that have been creating disruption that we've all been seeing, that is forcing tremendous change for all of us. So maybe you can just dive into kind of naming the condition that we are all in right now. Yeah, thank you. Well, uh, as we headed into the pandemic, we had all experienced 
three years of the Trump administration plus the two years of campaigning before that was wholly situated around stoking white racial grievance, right? Uh, and then a series of, of very traumatic policies, uh, very harmful policies that, that put children in cages, that banned Muslims from entering the United States, um, that, that stoked police brutality. And already heading into the pandemic, we knew that police were killing over a thousand people a year. And that out of all of those killings, there would be only one conviction of a police officer. At the same time, we have widening racial wealth gap, right? So before the pandemic, median black net wealth was projected to be zero by 2053, median Latinx net wealth projected to be zero by 2073. And the pandemic uh, and, uh, just accelerated that time frame, right? Because who was disproportionately impacted by job loss, who was disproportionately made to go into work as, as frontline emergency workers, and who was systematically infected. Uh, as, as many observers have noted, the, the disease itself did not discriminate, but what it exposed was all the cracks and who has access to the privilege of being able to stay home and work from home and who does not, and, and all the underlying comorbidities that are themselves tied to systemic racism and, and lack of access to healthcare, discrimination in the healthcare system, um, living in food deserts, I could go on and on and on. So, so the black and brown people make up a way disproportionate amount of the 600,000 Americans who have died from coronavirus, the 30 plus million Americans who've been infected by coronavirus. And, uh, and then in the midst of all of this, so we're all sitting at home and then we're seeing together Ahmad Arbery, Breonna Taylor. We're seeing Amy Cooper call NYPD uh, on, on, um, and a man who's there bird watching, watching and has the temerity to tell her to put her, her dog on a leash. And then we see uh, the Derek Chauvin uh, uh, murdering George Floyd. And although, you know, Black Lives Matter has been active since 2013, uh, this, this, the way he was gazing into the camera without a care in the world, um, the way his partner was standing there with his, with his hands in his pocket, the way you heard George Floyd call out for his mama. So many that you just could not not be impacted right. by that video, right? And so then, then for the first time, millions of Americans in all 50 states, in small towns like the one I grew up in that was a sundown town uh, in Northern Colorado, on Native American reservations, in rural America, in suburban America. My friend lives in a gated community outside of Dallas and the little kids organized a Black Lives Matter protest right. through their neighborhood, right? The Amish right. were protesting. Um, right. So I think that... 
a very unifying moment in our history. Um, and, 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 and then kind of this shift in focus. So prior to Labor Day, my phone was ringing off the hook. After Labor Day, the whole focus shifts to the election. Uh, and then we get the outcome that we want, right? But then we have January 6th. And then we have this spike in, in anti-Asian hate crimes. Um, and then we have continuing uh, mass killings. And, and um, even with the Chauvin verdict, uh, this spike in police killing. It's as if the police are saying, oh, you want to you take our power away? Let us show you how much power we have. And I, I myself, you know, I talk about this with my friends all the time, like it has just been this unending onslaught of trauma without any mm-hmm. adequate space to grieve before being hit with the next bit of trauma. And I'm sure there's things that I'm not even mentioning, the disproportionate impact on women, women of color, um, and that, that we've been set back as women, our labor market our labor force participation is now at 1988 levels. So it is, it has just been a, you know, a, a very, very um, trying time. Absolutely. And, and completely disruptive. And I think that the great reset or COVID has, and all the things that you illustrated that we have been witnessing and experiencing for, for myself I I feel more connected to what happens to everyone happens to me. I feel a connection to this, this wholeness that's happening to everyone is happening to me. And so that's one of the reasons why I was so interested in having this conversation with both of you and, and Jared, I want you to also, um, say a little bit about what you're seeing as well in the context of everything that's been going on and that Karen named. Yeah. I mean, great summary, Karen. Um, It's too bad that you had to summarize it so succinctly like that. But I mean, I think it was pretty accurate. A lot of what you said, I've seen, recognized, written about, talked about, helped other people uh, understand. And one thing that I focus on in my work is this um, this idea of, you know, we talk about anti-racism, we talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, all these, you know, in corporations, as consultants, whatever our, our role is in that. And sometimes we forget, like, that it's really about humanity. So I love what you just said, Christine, like, what happens to everyone happens to me, right? And so I focus a lot on the EQ side of things right? The empathy, the curiosity, the, um, the vulnerability. And I think, you know, as I was listening to Karen kind of, you know, summarize the last year, well, actually last five years, really, you started kind of back before the, the 2016 election. When George Floyd was murdered, we were all individually and, and collectively vulnerable. We, mm-hmm. we didn't know what was going on, even though we were two months into, uh, uh, you know, or more, three months maybe into a, a pandemic. There's still a lot of uncertainty, personal, economic, health, 
all these things we we just you know we were worried when are we going to go back to normal when is this going to happen am i going to lose my job is my uncle going to die is my neighbor all these things right and then we see this brutal blatant murder i mean there was there was no there's no way we couldn't see that even if we didn't actually watch the video we saw it and i think we tapped into that like that collective vulnerability um and i think it brought about uh you know it brought about like almost like this guilt right individual and collective guilt that people especially white people were were finally ready to to do something about it right and i think where we're where we've been for the last year is okay great but people don't necessarily know what to do Right. And I'm going to, we're going to dive into that. I know and, we are. <laughs> yeah, we're going to dive, we're going to dive into that. But, you know, it's important for in tune to have these conversations and lead the way mm -hmm. to opening the door to these conversations, because we are definitely bringing it into our work. And as a organization ourselves, we felt it important to take a stand as well. And what are we going to put our, uh, our, uh, our hearts and souls behind in terms of the work we do and what we're going to stand for as an organization. And I just want to say that Intune Collective is an anti-racist company standing in solidarity with our Black, Hispanic, APPI, Indigenous, and other people of color. We are a diverse team ourselves who provide business and leadership consulting who honor humanity first as we evolve and innovate business. So it's a really important thing for us as an organization to not only be the catalyst of this change and bring conversations like this to light, but also to make it part of our everyday work. And so, and, and also so that we can model it, right? If we're doing DEIB organizational change work in, in a company with our clients, we have to know where we're coming from ourselves and we're not just telling people to do things that we and ourselves are not doing. Um, um, but I wanted to get into some of the, the, um, the vernacular around this issue because we're talking about DEIB and, and social justice and some of those things. And, and, and Jared, why don't you take a couple stabs at what we're talking about here when we're talking about allyship and anti-racism. Um, and, and I know that there's a couple here that we want to define for um, you as our listeners, but um, maybe you can dive into that a little bit. So there's some context around yeah, what we it, mean by these terms. Totally. There's, gosh, there's so many terms to, to define and, and they, they, sometimes they're used interchangeably and they're not necessarily synonymous. So I think you know, people are probably familiar with D and I, right? Diversity and inclusion. And I've, you've mentioned, you know, D, E, I, B. So the E is equity, the B is belonging. So all those have different mm -hmm. meanings. Um, yeah. But even before we get into to that, I think it's important to understand like what social justice means. And there, I don't have a dictionary definition. I don't have anything written down, but the way I think of it is recognizing that not and I mean, Karen out, you know, outlined it pretty, pretty well just in her, in her opening comment around not everyone has access, has the same privilege, has the ability to get the same things, whether that's mm -hmm. healthcare, whether that's jobs, whether that's pay, whether that's housing, whether that's, you know, visibility, 
opportunities. So social justice, so people who believe in and, and are fighting for social justice, that's the lens that we're looking at. That it's the an, equity. It's an equity thing, right? And, mm-hmm. you know, I'd love to hear Karen's thoughts too, because, I mean, I know she, <laughs> she knows this stuff too, and hear what her thoughts on, you know, that definition of social justice. And I think I, the reason I started with that, because I think having that frame will help us define, identify, understand some of the other concepts like diversity, inclusion, belonging, et cetera. Yeah, and, and I was also reflecting on what you said, Christine, um, that what happens to me happens to everyone or what happens to everyone happens to me. But the fact of the matter is that's not really true in our society. You know, um, how I came to do this work, my prior, my prior career was in preparing young adults of color uh, for the workplace and um, particularly young adults who did not have a college degree preparing them for careers in tech, and then partnering with companies uh, for internships and then job placement after their internships. And it was through um, that organization that I became a mentor to hundreds of young adults of color. And I really had to face my stereotypes and my harmful assumptions about them uh, because they were so different from what I thought they were going to be like, you know? And then when they were describing their life stories, there were so many times when I had to say, wait, what? Like I just, the, the, the things that they had experienced were so dramatically different from the way that I had grown up um, that I, I, it was almost unfathomable to me what they had experienced. And then I thought I was doing them you know, I was helping them by by connecting them to these internships and 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 careers. And in a sense, I was. But when I listened to the stories of the harm that they were uh, experiencing in the workplace, a lot of it coming from women who look like me, who would say, oh, well, you know, we just hired you because you're black. That was the moment when I had to step back and realize uh, I was going to stop preparing young adults of color for the workplace and start preparing the workplace for young adults of color. Well, that's that's a fascinating distinction in and of mm-hmm. itself. And and to clarify, um, it's not that I think that what happens to black females or black males or Asian Americans right now happens to me. Like, there's no way I can relate to that pain of that and the experience of that as a white female. What I, what I do feel though, is that what affects one of us affects all of us mm-hmm. and that there's an interconnectionality of and an intersectionality of, and the connection of humanity in general. And yeah. so that, that is what I feel like in this global world we live in, where we have access to real-time media and we're seeing what's happening all over the world, what's happening in India right now, is that we are affected by it. And I, I feel like as white leaders particularly, um, we need to take that being affected by it and have it mobilize us into action and to taking a part of the solution to it. And that's, yeah. that's what I mean about just being uh, um, affected by it. 
Well, and, and that, that our, oh, our liberation is bound up in mm-hmm. each other's liberation in the Absolutely. immortal words of uh, Australian Aboriginal activists whose name is eluding me at this moment. But yes, <laughs> me too. But I know who you're talking about. Yes, exactly. We'll have to put it in the notes somewhere. But uh, Christine, what you just kind of described, because, you know, the reason I started with social justice, uh, being an ally, and there's some talk around like, we don't get to label ourselves or define ourselves as an ally others can and 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 you know will if we if we do the work so it's not about declaring that or trying to prove that you are one it's about doing the work and i think what you just said about that you know recognizing that there's other stuff going on and what how my how is what i'm feeling about it trans transforming into action into into uh, a change, personal and collective change. And that's, you know, more or less being an ally, right? Like taking, hey, I don't have to do this, but I want to, and I'm going to, right? right? right. And it, it's that recognition, you know, and this is a good way to kind of get into some of the definitions of some of the terms of, you know, there's a difference between equity and equality. So equality is, you know, everyone has the same. And equality is good in many ways, right? I have, I have 12 year old twins. So oh boy! I'm, I'm all about equality. <laughs> you know, equality. Right? Like you, you get the same amount of allowance as long as you do your thing. You know all the things. You know, making sure you treat each one you know, the same. But equity says it's not about sameness. It's about giving each person what they need to survive, to have opportunities, to mm-hmm. uh, to have access, etc. And so, someone who understands social justice, who understands why allyship and advocacy and uh, co-conspiracy, all these things are important, recognizes that we're not equal. Mm-hmm. You know, the things that Karen outlined in her, you know, when she first um, spoke, that things aren't equal. People aren't impacted equally. There's dip- disproportionate impacts right. on stuff. Right. So that's working for equity is to let, you know, you've probably heard the phrase level the playing field. So mm-hmm. once we level the playing field and everyone's at the same space, then we can talk, you know, talk, have a, a, a bigger conversation about equality. But I right. think people want to jump to equality and they either ignore or dismiss or underestimate or underemphasize that we're not in an equitable uh, place yet. Right. And I think that most of us want equality but we kind of bundle equality and the definition of equality with equity and don't understand that there's a distinction because then you would be advocating for equity too, right? You don't understand that equity is, does not implied inequality. Yeah. Well, I think so many of us live under the illusion of the myth of meritocracy mm-hmm. that we've been, that's been drilled into us by the people we love the most, you know, that's been drilled into us by our parents, by our schools, by our religious leaders. The idea that everything that we have is due to our hard work and that if others would just work hard, everything would, uh, they would have the same stuff that we do with no recognition of the access to wealth accumulation that has been systematically given and to supported, people yeah. and systematically stripped away from black people, indigenous people um, for hundreds of years. And, uh, and that this country is founded 
from the beginning, from 1619, mm-hmm. on land theft, genocide, um, and slavery uh, mm-hmm. that proved to be an incredibly uh, profitable system that allowed a very small group of white men to accumulate tremendous wealth and power. Um, And that is the truth of American history. In my own family, my great grandfather gets off the boat from France, makes his way to Western Nebraska. And in the 1880s, acquires 160 acres of land through the Homestead Act for which he pays $60. Um, That land is the traditional territory of the Cheyenne, Arapaho, and Kiowa people who, you know, a decade before my great-grandfather got there, militias of white men came through and genocided them um, and removed the survivors to far-off reservations. And at the same time that my great-grandfather got access to this land because he was a white Protestant immigrant, There were millions of recently emancipated Black people stuck sharecropping on the same land that they had previously been enslaved. And if they tried to do anything, if they tried to move, if they Mm -hmm. tried to organize, if they did anything to disrupt that system, were subjected to lynching and and rape. Um, And that's why so few Black people... Uh, participated in the Homestead Act. And like me, there are 49 million Americans who can trace uh, our family history to a Homestead Act land grant. My, My mother grew up on that land. It's still in my family's possession. It's the reason why she is a homeowner, why she was able to obtain a um, college degree. It's why I'm a homeowner and have a college degree. But my family's story is, oh, look at our hard working immigrant, you know, great grandfather who came over here with nothing and was able to create all of this. Well, yes, he did come over here with nothing. But the reason why we have intergenerational wealth is because the government stole land from Native people and gave it to him on the basis of his race. But we never talk about that. And thank you for naming that systemic thing because you know when we're doing these this DEIB work in organizations, we get that question a lot. You know, like how much can we actually do as individuals and organizations to create and dismantle some of that systemic racism that is built in to the structures that we're all are operating in? And so, but I want to talk about that influence like how do we how do we see change to actually occur because what we're supporting at in tune is to awaken individuals that start a grassroots viral movement we're hoping this this recording does something in individuals that then affect their sphere of influence that then affect a larger and larger growing population to actually challenge the system enough that it becomes a, re- a total reinvention and yeah. so that I'm curious to, to, I'm glad you brought that up, Karen, because we are talking about individual responsibility in this episode, and we are talking about organizational leadership responsibility, but in the context of this system and structural integrity that is very well established. Yeah, so glad, I, and I've been writing about this lately. 
it's it, if you it is about systems racism all these they're they're systemic <clears throat> they're intentional <clears throat> despite what tim scott and even gosh kamala harris say like racism is alive and well systemically you know today yeah. 2021 so if you so any individual who doesn't recognize that, appreciate that, uh, believe it, understand it, that's a problem. So if you don't have that found, you know, that like, that, and that's, that's just, that's just what it is. That's, that's, mm -hmm. that's what it is as Karen, you know, captured. So for individuals, and this is what I say, like, yes, we have to work on the systems, but individuals create systems and work in systems, whether they're in organizations or government or wherever they are. Right. And so I think, that's part of the coaching and the awareness raising I do with individuals. Like I'm helping you recognize that there's a system that's problematic so that you, the individual can do something about it. That's right? a great segue. That's a super great segue. And I'm going to ask because both of you shared with me your individual approaches to white leaders or white people participating in allyship. So Karen, you've got your racy conversations framework. I'd love to hear about that a little bit more. Can you share that with us? And then Jared, I know you have four pillars. So we're going to dive into what we can do as individuals to create and manifest change. Love it. Go ahead, Karen. Yeah. So racy conversations, core values are love, learning, action, and accountability. Love meaning we come into the work trying to make things better, trying to uh, root ourselves in compassion for each other as well as for ourselves. Learning, we recognize that we're all human, we're all making mistakes and we approach things with curiosity and uh, from a learning growth mindset. Accountability, everything we do has to be done in accountability to the most marginalized people we can't self-designate oh i'm an ally no it has to be centered on what they want uh the specific things they want to see change and following their leadership and um action that we can't just learn about this passively we have to put it into practice. We have to do things with it. And the framework for change that we operate under in Racy Conversations is to start by healing and changing ourselves and then healing and changing our relationships with each other, getting in right relation with each other so that we can unite across difference and heal and change institutions, systems, laws, practices, policies. Um, and that Beautiful. is the framework that we, that we offer at Racy Conversations. That I just, I was right. I mean, I'm, I'm familiar with Racy Conversations and your work, Karen, and just hearing you say that it's like, it's, it's kind of cool because as I was thinking, as you alluded to Christine, like these four pillars that I, they're called something different and I'll, I'll get to it in a second, but hearing as Karen went through, it's like, yeah, they're kind of the same thing. And I say that not dismissively of her or of me, but that's what's cool is about it is we come with our own background, our own experience, our own context, our own learnings, our own frameworks, and we're trying to reach the same thing. So for me, I have these four pillars and these are in the book and these are what I try and bring to leaders and to, to you know, departments, business units, whenever I'm working inside an organization. 
One is this, as I've talked about, the social justice. Sometimes DEI or DIB, and I know we still haven't defined all those terms yet, we can. Sometimes, a lot of times actually, people in organizations, they wanna do that work, they wanna be inclusive, they wanna create belonging, they wanna, they value diversity, and yet they don't have any appreciation or knowledge of social justice, some of the things we've already talked about. And you can't do that work well and effectively and impactfully without a social justice lens. So I always start with, here's this, you know, Karen did a great job of just capturing some of the history. You got to know this stuff and you got to understand it. You got to accept it, not because it's good, but just because it's happened. So social justice. So you're, so as part of social justice or the first step towards social justice is educating yourself. Yeah. Education, awareness. Uh, I talk a lot about fluency, cultural fluency, racial fluency, right? Understand. So the second part is this EQ thing. So empathy, curiosity, vulnerability, um, listening, right? Kind of reducing the ego, right? So that you can actually see people as humans. Because, you know, Karen, I think one of the first things she said was, you know, everything that's been going on the last, well, really 400 plus years, but especially the last five years, it's like stoking white racial grievance, right? That white people are should be aggrieved, are the are the victims, right? So you have to break that down with people, some people, a lot of people with the, you know, let's, let's practice some empathy, not as a response to something that happened to someone, but as a default disposition. The third yes. thing is mindfulness. This idea of, you said it earlier, equanimity, uh, sitting with uncertainty, being uncomfortable, breathing, pausing, making space, right? This whole thing, like, wait, do I actually have uh, as strong of, an opinion on that topic as I seem to express, you know, now that I think about it, I don't. Right. Mm -hmm. So just that pause. And then the fourth thing is storytelling. So the narrative each, so, so few people, especially in leadership positions, they might've developed a leadership story or a, you know, here's how I got to this position type story, which is great, but they don't have it vis-a-vis -vis race. They don't have it, you know, vis-a-vis -vis how their privilege of being a white person who's a VP. They don't have it vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, who's looking up to them and what they are saying or not saying about what's going on in the world. So, so Jared, what would be your story as a white male? You know, like, yeah. what do you, what, because I think that this is really important because we don't think of ourselves as narrative sometimes, like exactly. if I were to, and so what would your story be? Because I think that will inspire listeners to really think about what their own narrative is. Totally. I mean, I have dozens of stories and I tell them all the time, but I think the most relevant one to this conversation, <clears throat> I was 24 and I was on a bus in San Francisco, the 19 Polk bus. And I was coming through the Tenderloin and I had gone to a bookstore and I had a couple of books that my dad had suggested I read. And one of them was Ralph Ellison's uh, Invisible Man. So I'm sitting in there on the bus. It's nine mm -hmm. o'clock on a Thursday night. And I have a stack of books and I go through the Tenderloin and a black man gets on the bus and he sits down like kind of like right next to me in this empty bus. So I'm like, okay, that's kind of weird. So it turns out he wants to talk about the book. So he starts up a conversation about this book. That book changed my life. I said, oh yeah, my dad said I should read it said, oh, your dad's a smart man. So for about 10 minutes, we have this conversation. I'm a 24-year-old, just out of college, you know, white dude. This is really my first conversation with a, like, a black person ever, right? So he gets off the bus. He said, hey, have a great night. You know, read that book. It's going to change your life. And I get off the bus a few minutes, a few stops later, and I walk into my dad's house, and I'm buzzing. 
I'm like, oh, I'm 24. I just had this intellectual conversation in San Francisco with this black man. And I go and I tell my dad about the whole story and he's, he's beaming, you know, because he's like, oh, finally my, my son who's grown up in the suburbs, he's finally, you know, breaking into reality and, and diversity and all this stuff. So I tell him the story and I end the story and I said, yeah, dad, you know, <clears throat> and he was actually pretty smart. Mm. And so I thought I was a little further along than I was. And my dad immediately, you know, just kind of went, oh, man, did you just say that? I mean, he didn't say that, but that's kind of what he was thinking, right? And why did I say that? Why was I surprised? Because up until that point, I had so few interactions with black people. So it wasn't that I was like outwardly racist and throwing the N-word around and you know, ha hatred. I just didn't know. I had no proximity. And so I have this positive experience that I recognize as positive, but clearly I was surprised by it. And so, so you were informed by media or other sources that yeah. created your understanding of reality that wasn't really true. Yeah, that, and that, that narrative vis-a-vis -vis that conversation was that mm -hmm. most black men aren't that intellectually smart enough to have a conversation like that. Right. And so, you know, that was, I'm 47, so that was 23 years ago. Right. And so that and other similar uh, incidents, experiences, events around that time, early, early to mid, late 20s, you know, I mean, my 20s, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. started to go, okay, I got to do something about this. So I started on my journey and you know, I've been on it ever since. It reminds me of this um, Brene Brown quote that you and I both recognized. Um, and she said, when you witness acts of dehumanization or racism or atrocities of, of, of any kind against humanity, what is the narrative? What is the story mm -hmm. you tell yourself that makes it okay? And that is what I think you're asking is like mm -hmm. to to think about that story and to think about that narrative and question the narrative when it sounds like you're questioning your narrative has led you to do this work, which is amazing. Wow, what a discussion. Thank you so much for listening. Okay, so we broke down the Brene Brown quote, which is essentially as a white person, What's the narrative or the story you tell yourself when you witness or observe injustice? It's really important that we question the narrative or the stories we tell ourselves that make it okay. Make it okay for us to step over and move beyond when we witness something that just isn't right. So it's important that we all take the time right now to maybe jot down what's the story you tell yourself. And we hope you'll join us for part two. If listening to The Business of Being Human has intrigued you, inspired you, encouraged you, we would appreciate it if you rated and left us a review on Apple Podcasts. This will help others find the show. The Business of Being Human is a production of Intune Collective, it is produced and edited by Elizabeth Joy Windham, Associate Producer Emily Petrov. Executive Producers are Christine Hildebrand and Wendy Horn Brower. Our theme music is by Adrian Walther. It is called Empowered. Cover and episode art is by Lisa Hardy. 
You can find all of our episodes and learn more about the services of Intune Collective at IntuneCollective.com.